You're listening to the Well-Tempered Wireless on 90.9 FM, and uh, we often have interesting and uh, uh, wonderful folks popping through uh, the studio every once in a while, and uh, this, though, is uh, a very special guest that you've heard before on the radio, usually asking for money. (laughs) Uh, But today we're going to ask Paul Hogel about... uh, your new move, your new venture. Hello, Paul. Good morning. It's good to be here. Paul is the executive vice president of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, which means he's uh, right behind Ann Parsons in terms of the management of the organization. And uh, six years, about six years. That yeah, been. six years and a month. What an interesting period that's been, too. Uh, and before we get into the nitty gritty, uh, I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't take a couple of moments to uh, talk about the passing of Marjorie S. Fisher, who uh, died uh, over the weekend yeah, at yes, the age yeah. of 92. What a what an amazing uh, couple Max and Marjorie were. And, and obviously, uh, the Detroit Symphony and the city of Detroit owes them a great, great debt. Yeah, it's, um, it's an important milestone in the life of the DSO this weekend. Because I never met Max because he was already gone by the time I got here. And I only met Marjorie once in a large family context. I only knew of her through her family and through her writing and through her kind words. And what I understood was that Max was the formidable businessman who was interested in the enterprise and what could be accomplished and all that was possible by that. And Marjorie loved the people. Marjorie Marjorie would send these warm messages supporting our musicians and Leonard and Anne, and she often spoke about giving coming from the heart. Uh, She embodied that type of activity. Of course, she was very generous to the to the symphony and to many other causes in this in this community. But her words of encouragement about the men and women who sit on that stage and represent the city, I think, will be the, the lasting memory that I take away when I when I leave town. According to her foundation, uh, the Max and Marjorie S. Fisher uh, Foundation, over the six years that she was chairman, uh, they distributed over $70 million in grants to uh, nearly 50 different partners. Uh, It's a a tremendously generous, uh, and the Max Fisher, Max M. and Marjorie S. Fisher Music Center is a a huge testament. It it was really an honor to be present for the renaming last summer when we added her name so appropriately to our building. It it may have been Max that said to the fundraisers two decades ago that you're not thinking big enough, but I think it was Marjorie that says you have to think about um, the passion of the people and and what the programs are that are going to happen in this building and touch the lives of so many in this community. And that, that day when we revealed her name being added. It was a fitting testimony to a really wonderful, remarkable woman. Well, and clearly their uh, their generosity will benefit this community for many, many years yeah. to come. Uh, so May of 2010, yeah. uh, you came to Detroit, and when you were interviewed, I understand, the, the committee that was uh, interviewing included musicians. It did. Who had, uh, who wanted to tell you something as, as a, as a favor, sort of, as as a clearing of the air. Yeah, they were very honest, uh, and I would even say compassionate in telling me, uh, there's troubled times that are on the horizon, and you probably shouldn't buy a house. <laughs> and it wasn't meant 
mean-spiritedly. It was meant as a kind, loving piece of advice that in case things don't go well, don't lock into a big piece of property that you may not have a institution to serve. And and I, I remember that like it was yesterday because it's been a bit of a metaphor for me on this journey. They were looking out for me. And of course I didn't listen. That's not a metaphor, but <laughs> I, I didn't listen because I wanted my own heart to be fully planted here. So that was May by August. We were, my wife and I were moving into our home and, and definitely have made Southeast Michigan our home. No regrets about that. Only uh, positive thoughts. How, that's amazing. I mean, I, w- w- why didn't you run away? Uh, w- w- I remember uh, when Ann Parsons first called, it was probably January of 2010. And we were talking about all that was going on in Detroit she was best friends with my uh, immediately former boss in Atlanta. They were in each, uh, at each other's weddings. There's a long, fruitful relationship between the two of them. And Anne said to me, if you have any interest at all, you should come visit because I think within a half a day, you will know whether the Detroit story, whether the Detroit personality, whether all that's here is intriguing to you. She said, because I, coming from Manhattan, that's all it took. I arrived. Mm. I, I met the people, I kind of understood the Detroit story. And I did that in February, and she was right. Uh, if it was a half a day, I'd say that was longer than it took. It probably took a couple hours. What, I, what struck you about that visit? Um, there's this, there's this um, uh, whole essence, a contagion, contagious essence of a can-do attitude it doesn't stand on some rigor of the past that has to be uh, uh, followed to the T. It rewards anyone who's willing to grab a shovel or, or lend a hand and help do the work. And it's this unquenchable thirst for excellence. This is not a place that's ever struggled with quality. The orchestra, the opera, the mm. museum, uh, lots of lots of beacons nationally and internationally of excellence. That was never the debate. The debate was what the generational recovery period was going to be. And what I felt when I was talking with people and meeting with people and just casual things, restaurants and, and hotels, there was a spirit that if you were willing to come and participate, just get in line and do your share, that they would welcome you and, and put you to work. And I felt that the moment I arrived. Well, the musicians turned out to be um, right in that yeah. right after you, you came, uh, the orchestra and, and the organization was faced with a, uh, is it safe to say, an existential crisis? I mean, how, how close did, did we come to losing the orchestra? Um, hmm. it's, hard. it's hard to kill an orchestra, but I think those six months tested the entire community, the community of musicians, the community of philanthropists, the broader community whom we serve, our patrons, even our business partners up and down Woodward Corridor who were who went through their own journey when there aren't 2,000 people coming down mm. three times a week. The restaurants, all those other services aren't needed, and that became a struggle. So I do think it was a bit of an existential examination. Everyone believed though, that the end of the uh, unpleasantness 
was going to return a great orchestra to the stage to serve this community. That was evident from the beginning. Yes, we were having a vicious family disagreement, which ultimately we uh, overcame together and have reconciled, I think, wonderfully. But those six months, the silent months, uh, were very, very tough. Mm. What turned it around? Was there a moment? Was there a day you came in and said, oh, we we're pulling back from the brink? There were many moments, but I think, I think the history will correctly show that when our musicians reached out to Dan Gilbert and Matt Collin, the way the two of them came and helped us mediate among ourselves, and, and Matt particularly, we spent several days with Dan uh, on this project, but it was Matt who in the end was in the room with us the final 22 and a half hours, um, going between the two parties, talking about our agreements and our differences. This was not an area that he had understanding of. This is an area he became an extraordinary student of. And to this day, he has friends in the orchestra. He comes and sees people on the stage, the, the, the very people that he helped broker this deal with. I, I think that was the breaking of the logjam was when the two of them received the call and then answered the call to get involved. There were all kinds of dire predictions that uh, people were going to leave. You're going to lose all your uh, your best players, and and indeed a lot of uh, players did leave, uh, and they were indeed replaced with, in many cases, younger uh, musicians. But uh, for my money, and I'm I'm a dilettante who enjoys listening to music. I think the orchestra sounds great. You you, you managed to acquire some uh, outstanding players. Yeah. It, it's the orchestra world is one of the few industries that doesn't have tremendous movement among other ensembles like you might at the highest elite level of sports. Mm. And I am always sad when someone takes an audition and wins an audition when they're going to an orchestra that feels like a peer. I'm not sad for somebody if they grew up someplace and want to play in that orchestra and it's really a, a, a renowned ensemble. I focus on the almost 30 people who have now come to Detroit, made this their home, and have really started contributing to this community both on stage and in, in, in every aspect of our community service because they are, our, they are our face into our community and that's what makes this a very special place. My guest is Paul Hogel, Executive Vice President of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra for, oh, I don't know, what, a few more weeks? <laughs> Three more weeks. <laughs> uh, before <clears throat> accepting a position as President and CEO of the Cleveland Institute of Music. Uh, you've had a, a, a thrilling tenure, uh, and, and one of those thrills had to be the Carnegie Hall tour. What was that like? I've been to Carnegie Hall many times, probably... 20 times with five different orchestras. I've seen Chicago and Daniel Barenboim conduct and Robert Spano and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and Chorus perform some of the great repertoire of our, of our canon. No night made me more proud than the opening night when, when Detroit opened in the Spring for Music Festival. The, the setup was that every person that was from Detroit or had an affiliation was given a red bandana. Each orchestra throughout the festival had a different color. Ours was red. And when the host came out and said, Detroit, let me see your colors, 
everyone leapt to their feet, <laughs> waving their flag. I was sitting on a box with Jim Nicholson, David Fisher, and I remember the look on their faces with great pride looking out over that massive, massive main floor with people waving red flags at Detroit. I feel like we had finally earned a part of our return, and now the world is watching. And then the orchestra performed, and it was a dazzling night. And the, the orchestra now, uh, after those six years, uh, and I know a lot of things were in the works even before you came, but uh, there's, there's a, it's a very different orchestra in some respects, especially with regard to electronic media. Yeah, we, w coming out of the uh, strike in 2010-11, one of the things that we planned for during the silent period were the webcast, were, were the webcasts. And we knew if we could get to market that we would be the only American orchestra doing that. And we knew that when people heard this ensemble worldwide in that forum, they would immediately understand how special it is and that, that the, the reputation was well-deserved. So now we're pushing up on uh, a million views of our webcast and digital products since 2011, over 100 countries, clearly people watching Detroit and listening to what's happening. I believe it's helped in our comeback. I believe it's helped us recruit musicians who didn't have to wonder what the DSO sounded like. They could turn in mm -hmm. and watch it live. And I was even told in my interviews in Cleveland by esteemed faculty members that they use our webcasts in the classroom to, to talk about certain parts of the repertoire and approaches huh. to it. Um, that's not the first time I've heard things like that. And it, it's very good. So you couple live webcast, the live educational programs that we're now doing, the direct from festival to recording uh, uh, digital releases, and you get a pretty 21st century approach to how an American orchestra might serve the world. Have you noticed an impact at the box office? The only, there's certainly not been a negative impact, which is a question a lot of people ask. What mm. I find is that people either come to the concert and then go home and watch it a second time or do the reverse. They, it's like reading the program notes in advance. They, they watch it, they see things that they want to see, and then they come see it the next night. Now, of course, our international guests don't do that, but those in the region uh, definitely do that. Carnegie Hall certainly was a highlight. Or were there other thrilling moments in that in that six years that uh, you fondly remember? Yeah, there 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 have been. Uh, we've done a number of, of uh, the during the festival runs. Uh, Leonard's idea of being immersed in a single composer and really watching and listening to the progression of that composer's uh, body of work, I've really enjoyed. The Beethoven Festival um, was was revelatory for me only because I got to hear the the first through ninth symphonies all in in sequence and understand what that or imagine what that must have been like for Beethoven and his creative genius. It's easy to say, oh yeah, Beethoven, you know, great composer and everything. But when you hear those in progression and then learn about what he was thinking and, and how revolutionary they were for their time, that was that was really quite amazing. Yeah. The the uh, thirty two sonatas in one day, in one day. eight a.m. to ten yes. p.m. was was stunning. Yeah, that was. <clears throat> and and Chris, it's as much of a classical aficionado as I am. Our night with Kid Rock at the Fox. Yeah, one of the great all time, uh, never to be forgotten events. Very few orchestras 
and very few music directors at an international stature level could have pulled that off like Leonard and my colleagues from the orchestra did. And, and to Kid Rock's credit, the way he worked with the orchestra, the way he kind of leaned into that deal and helped us raise the money, which again came from Dan Gilbert and Matt Collin to help us uh, raise the money for operations and our service in the community. That was a completely different than Carnegie Hall or the festival experience, but equally memorable. So you're moving to the uh, Cleveland Institute of Music. It's a, uh, you're now the, the, the captain of the ship. Um, do you, are you, you, I know you'll miss Detroit. I will. And I hope that you'll come back soon. I, I want to read you uh, a quote, though, from uh, conductor James Conlon, uh, who, and I thought this was very interesting. We have a great paradox in America, he said. Uh, I would say that we have more great orchestras, certainly, among the greatest opera companies, and we have conservatories where we're producing extraordinary uh, level of students, far higher level than when I was in conservatory. We have an extraordinary supply. What has atrophied is the, the demand. I'm not talking about music education for professionals. I'm talking about music as a part of everybody's education. Yep. And how do you combat that? How, how do we, um, you know, there are, there are more fine musicians out there than there are openings. Yes. And, and there's a, always been a concern about uh, the aging of the audience, the graying of the audience yeah. and that. And, well, as you would imagine, everyone asks me this question. And since I don't even enter the office for almost another month, my answers are going to be youthful in their development because I haven't spent any time inside the institution. But here's what I've observed here in Detroit and my other work with other orchestras. I think Conlon's right. The preparedness musically never been higher. In fact, every year, each class seems to build upon the previous class of, of artistic capabilities. And they're all from all over the world, of course. What's intriguing to me at the conservatory level, so to me, conservatory is the most elite of our training programs, rich, historic uh, institution worldwide for the truly top-level talent. How are we preparing our graduates off the stage? How are we preparing them to use their substantial creative voice, both in approaching a, a, a sonata as they would to approaching a balance sheet or a marketing issue or representing their skills as an entrepreneur in the community? Hmm. I think we owe it at the conservatory level to be doing that, not as a replacement for scales, etudes, excerpts, and, and audition repertoire, but so that the very fabric that is a professional musician, which has always been entrepreneurial, always, how are we nurturing in that in every graduate so that when they leave the Cleveland Institute of Music, they are so prepared, whether they decide to start their own chamber group or go yeah. play in the Cleveland Orchestra, they are standing on the shoulders of the past with preparedness that they'd never been offered before. That's really exciting to me. If I can sit with a parent and say to them, if you send your son or daughter, niece or nephew, to the Cleveland Institute of Music, they will be prepared artistically and intellectually to be successful in the field of music. And that's what we would want. You're going to give them the tools to survive in the jungle. Correct. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. 80% of the graduates of CIM find jobs in orchestras at some level. 
Well, there you go. Half the viola section of the Boston Symphony came from the Cleveland Institute of Music. There, oh. there are jobs, look at, in the past five years, 30 new jobs at the Detroit Symphony through retirements, almost all retirements. Those, and some of those have been won by CIM graduates. Hmm. We want to be positioned to be able to do that. Well, there are a number of uh, Detroit Symphony alumni yes. who have gone on to head other major, Deborah Borda, yep. for one, uh, and, and and others. Uh, I know this is this is premature, but uh, is there life after the Cleveland Institute? Do you see yourself heading an orchestra down the road somewhere? You know, the the quirky thing about me is I never think about it. Uh-huh. I, in in January, I was making speeches to Rotary Clubs in Southeast Michigan about my future here. And on February 2nd, when, um, when CIM called at the referral of the former president of the Cleveland Orchestra, I had never thought uh, about running a major conservatory. So I don't know what the future holds. Uh, all I know is that for the next five years, I'm under contract in Cleveland. I'm from Cleveland. My parents live about 45 minutes uh, from there, so they're very happy. My daughter, one of my three daughters went to college there. I have this great affection for all things Ohio. Go Buckeyes. Um, but we'll let that go. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Hogel, executive vice president of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra for a few more weeks and president and CEO of the Cleveland Institute of Music. Thank you so much for your time Thanks, and your Chris. tenure.